Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is so good to see you yet again. Grace at home, thank you for inviting us back in. I cannot wait to see you in our worship center soon. Please stick around after this worship service where we'll give you all the details and how that will work. But in the meantime, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy and chapter 4. 1 Timothy and chapter 4. We're reading this book that Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is pastoring a church that he pastored, that Paul pastored for, for three years. And so today Paul gives the job description for Timothy, the job description of a pastor. And so as we're getting back to work, I know that our economy is opening up a little bit and people are going back to work. And so you might be going to work on Monday. And so I brought six of the worst jobs that there are. Number six on the list is data entry in China. Would you want to be stuck in that room for eight hours a day, every single day of your life? Number five on the worst jobs list is a pet food taster. That's right, testing dog food for a living. And which might result in you going to the porta potty. And so, number four on the list is a porta potty cleaner, sucking out all the goo in the porta potty. Number three on the list in England, they have lice assassins. The job is to go out and to clean people of the lice that is in their hair. One of the company names in England for this is the hair force. But you could be in India, and in India, they have ear cleaners. And so if you weren't busy one day, you could go out on the street, and you could become an ear cleaner yourself. And the number one bad job on the list is a sewer swimmer. You get all suited up in your helmet and all your gear, and you're lowered down into the goo. How come all these things have to do with goo? <laughs> Lower down into the goo, and that is then where you're going to work for the next eight hours. So you think you have a bad job. Maybe this makes tomorrow morning look just a little bit better. Well, one of the definitions of a bad job is one that has too many bosses. And you've pro maybe you've been a part of a job like that where you had too many bosses, where one boss wants it done their way, and they say that you need to turn the screw this way. And then the next boss comes in the next day, and they want it done their way. And they tell you, no, 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 you need to turn the screw that way. And then another boss comes in the next day, and they don't like to use screws at all. They like to use duct tape, and they get mad at anybody who uses screws. And so it is frustrating to work where there are too many bosses. Well, today is the job description of a pastor. Today is my job description. The job description of a pastor, and you might say, man, you are, you're pretty daring, pastor. You have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bosses. But it isn't people who judge pastors. God is the one who judges pastors. And I think he is going to be a much stricter judge than any of you nice people sitting on your couch wearing your pajamas this morning. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus' brother says about this in James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we, meaning teachers, we will incur a stricter judgment. So who wants to preach after that verse? 
So I'm sure you're eager to judge me based on my job description, and so let's get at it. First, the Apostle Paul gives a job description of a bad pastor, of a false teacher, and then he gives a job description of a good pastor or a good teacher. So let's start with the first five verses, which is the job description of a bad pastor. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer." And so let's stop right there in our reading today. This is the job description of a bad pastor. He starts with that first. Now remember, Timothy is pastoring. He's the, like the interim pastor of this church in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla were the ones who founded it. Paul was the pastor in it for three years. Paul gets arrested, and once he is sent to jail, um, bad doctrine uh, uh, sp- spiritual inaccuracies begin to grow in the church. And so you have the, this, um, this, this bad spiritual doctrine beginning to rise in the church. And so he brings Timothy along with him. Timothy is his protege. Timothy is his spiritual son because he led him to Jesus Christ. So he brings Timothy along with him to go to this church in Ephesus. And he says, Timothy, I want you to pastor this church to deal with the spiritual error that's going on here. And, and every local church, ever since the first century church in Acts, every church has been susceptible to spiritual error, every single one of them, because it's a local church. It, it isn't like there's a, a mothership where there's the mothership that writes the sermon and then disseminates to all of the satellite churches. And so because it's a local church, there is a susceptibility to false doctrine. And so Timothy was there to correct those things. And so if you were to be interviewing for the job of a bad pastor in a church, these are the things that you would try to qualify for. Beginning at verse 1, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Now who are these some? Who is, who is this? This is the people that we've been studying so far, the elders, the deacons, the deaconesses, that some of them, as Jesus' Jesus's return gets closer, as the, as the latter times continue getting closer to Jesus, some of those deacons and some of those elders and some of those deaconesses will fall away from the faith. That's the first criteria for being a bad pastor, falling away from the faith. That's number one. That simply means that they aren't believing what they used to believe. They don't believe now what they used to believe. And now they're believing other things that are false, that are inaccurate instead. And so that's the difficulty of a false teacher because they have the tradition that, that sounds good. They have the tradition and the words and the terminology that you're used to. But then they're bringing in all of this other culturally relevant doctrine 
that, that fits our culture but doesn't fit Scripture. And so they merge these two. They mix the, mix the traditional biblical with what you already know, and, but they've fallen away from that. They know the words. They, they don't know the power of the words. They know what it means, but they don't care about the meaning. And so they bring in the words and they bring in the idea, but then they bring in all the thoughts and the doctrine from somewhere else that are false, and they then communicate that. And so that's the danger of a false teacher, but they've fallen away from the faith. Second job description of a bad pastor, they are seared in their conscience. That means that they, they uh, believe the, 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 the false things, they've ignored the true things for so long that they just don't even care anymore. They are seared in their conscience. And finally... They are legalistic. They are legalistic. They aren't trying to mature spiritually. They just want to look like they are. They want to look religious. They're more concerned about how they look than who they actually are. And it gives some examples of this. Men who forbid marriage. Oh, you know, if you want to be really godly, you would set, a, set yourself apart for Jesus. If you really wanted to be spiritual, you would marry Jesus and not have any relationships with people of the opposite sex because you're consecrated to Jesus. But that's completely contrary to what Scripture says. Scripture says that if you are burning with this passion for some of the opposite sex, it's better to marry than to burn with this passion. The Bible says it's better to marry. These guys were saying, yeah, you know, it would look more religious if you said you were consecrated to Jesus. And it talks about some other things in this verse, too, about advocating for abstaining from certain things. Well, you know, if, uh, if you're a real Christian, you wouldn't eat that, but you would eat that. You, you know, if, if you're a real Christian, you wouldn't go to those movies. If you're a real Christian woman, you wouldn't wear those pants. If you're, if you're a real Christian man, you wouldn't wear that tank top. <laughs> now, I agree with the tank top. <laughs> Guys shouldn't be wearing tank tops, but that's another topic instead. They are legalistic. They, they add things to Scripture to look as if they're religious. So here's the job description. If you're going in for a job interview for a bad pastor, this is what you would want on your resume. You've fallen away from the faith. You're seared in your conscience. You have ignored the truth so long, you just don't really even care about it anymore. And you look religious more than you actually love Jesus at all. But I know that you weren't looking for the job description of a bad pastor. You were looking for the job description of a, ten pa- of a, of a good pastor. And there are, ten, there are ten parts of that job description. And so the first one, verse 6. They warn their church about false teaching. They warn their church about false teaching. Notice at the bottom there of each slide, it shows you what the topic is of the highlighted words above. And notice it says in 1 Timothy 4, 6 there, pointing out these things to the brethren. Well, what are these things? Pointing out what things? The things that the false teachers are talking about in verses 1 to 5, pointing out that these things are, are wrong. And the best preventative for a, a Christians believing false teaching is a constant dose of good biblical doctrine. The best way to inoculate a church and inoculate Christians from false doctrine is to give consistent, regular, good biblical doctrine. You've heard the analogy of how the investigators know what is a counterfeit $100 bill. It's because they study a good $100 bill. And as soon as you study a good $100 bill long enough, you immediately know the false quickly. You know the fake instantly. And so... That is one way that a pastor does, is by teaching good biblical 
doctrine consistently to inoculate his church from the false. But not all of a pastor's sermons can just be upbeat and positive. Some of them needs to be warnings about what is wrong. A, a good parent does that. A parent will warn their kids about strangers, warn their kids about the dangers of drugs, warn their kids about eating too much Taco Bell. They'll warn them about all of these things. And so that is what a pastor does, warns his church about false teaching. Secondly, secondly, he serves Jesus. He serves Jesus. Notice it says there that, that he is a good servant of Jesus Christ. And surprisingly, the pastor is not specifically the servant of the people in his church. He is the servant of Jesus Christ. And the way that he serves Jesus Christ is by serving the people in his church. And there's a nuance there. There, that's an important nuance that many Christians don't understand, that a pastor is to serve Jesus Christ, and he does that by serving his church, not the other way around. Some Christians don't understand these things, and they're wondering why the things that they demand the pastor to do, that he's not willing to do them. Well, it's because he is to follow the commands of Jesus Christ first, and he's to implement those commands in the local church. He isn't to take the demands of, of someone in the church and just pretend those things were from God. And so he serves Jesus. And I think every strong Christian would want a pastor that serves Jesus and then serves his church, not the other way around. Thirdly, thirdly, a pastor takes Bible study seriously. A, a good pastor takes Bible study seriously. Notice what it says there in verse 6. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith, and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't, Paul. Oh, no, you didn't say that. The only way that a pastor would know the difference between uh, false doctrine about worldly fables and good truth, the only way that he would know the difference is by studying God's word. That's the only way that he would know. And a good pastor knows that the Bible is his source for, for truth. That's where he gets those truths from, is from God's word. And unfortunately, there are some pastors that, that don't see it that way. They see the, the study of the, of the Bible as merely an inconvenience for, for them in their life, that it inconveniences them from the rest of their ministry. One time I was at a barbecue with some friends, and one of the people that were invited there was a pastor also. And so began to talk, and, and they asked me, well, how big's your church? And I hate that, I hate that question. Because I just don't think the number of people in a church is a good indication of the quality of the church. There are some great churches that are small, and there are some really bad churches that are really big. And the same on the reverse. There are some bad churches that are really small, and there are some great churches with great pastors and elders that are very big. And so I'm just not convinced that the number of people in a church really is an indication of the quality of the church at all. And so... When they ask, how big's your church? I usually say, well, it's about 30,000 square feet. <laughs> That's not the, the answer they were looking for. But then our conversation moves to, how do you prepare for a sermon? And I told them how my, what my preparation style is. I plan way out, and I know where I'm going, and I prepare three months ahead of time. And it gives me time to study and meditate and these kinds of things. And, and they, they kind of step back and say, oh, I just write down a few words on on Saturday night. 
but see, a pastor needs to take Bible study seriously. If, if the, the person sees Bible study as an inconvenience, maybe they aren't cut out to be uh, a pastor. Next, a pastor disciplines himself for godliness. He disciplines himself for godliness. Notice it says there, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. No pastor can be effective in his personal ministry without his, without his personal uh, godliness. That, that um, His ministry is an overflow of his personal growth in, in Jesus Christ. That is where his ministry becomes successful. The word discipline there is the word in Greek, the word naked. <laughs> and it's the word where we get gym or gymnasium. It's this Greek word that talks about exercise and, and getting fit. And in Greece, you did that naked. And so Paul uses this word discipline. It's not like it's not about getting naked in the church. It's about working hard and exercising yourself for the purpose of godliness. So a pastor, a good pastor, disciplines himself for godliness. Fifth, a pastor works hard. A pastor works hard. Notice it says, for it is for this we labor and strive. The word labor there in the Greek means to work to the point of exhaustion. Strive is the word where we get the word agony. Work to the point where you're tired and, and agonized. Yes, a pastor is dependent upon God's power. But he isn't simply dependent on God's power and then goes golfing on Monday and then goes to some city, uh, city gathering on Tuesday and prays all day Wednesday and then goes to some church growth seminar on, on Thursday and then eh, maybe Jesus will write my sermon on Saturday. Who, who really knows? It'll all get worked out. P- part of the ministry of a pastor is very earthly in the sense that it is working very hard. Unfortunately, I know people who do who go to who golf on Monday and, and go to the city meetings on Tuesday and pray all day Wednesday and go to some seminar on Thursday and just kind of figure things out <laughs> over the weekend for their sermon on on Sunday but a pastor works hard and it tells why this is important look back at 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 it says because we work hard because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men especially of believers. All Christians are going to appear before the judgment seat of of Christ. And this isn't about being judged for our sins. It's about being judged for the actions, for the good things that we do. All the, every non-Christian is going to be judged for their sin. And a pastor works hard because he knows that he holds the keys for these people about the good news that would help them in these judgments. And so he works hard knowing that he could help people regarding the judgments that are to come. He works hard. Next, he is a good example for the church. He's a good example for the church. Paul tells Timothy, show yourself to be an example to those who believe. And the reason that Paul puts this in here, particularly for Timothy, is, you know, Timothy's younger. He's in his 30s. And the word overseer and elder we know has has nothing to do with physical age, chronological age. And it doesn't have anything to do really with how long you've been a Christian. 
but it's about your spiritual maturity. And Paul was concerned that this church wasn't going to follow his leadership in the church because he was, he was in his 30s. And in the Greek culture, anybody under 40 is a kid, you know? And so Paul was worried that, that they weren't going to follow his leadership in the church. And so he says, you need to live your life as an example. You need to live your life as a spiritually mature person, no matter your age. And, yeah, I mean, we all know those people who are, who are older, they have physical age, but they're the same goofballs from, from, when they, from when they were a kid. You know, everybody has that crazy uncle. You know that crazy uncle who, who when you go to a family get-together and everybody gets back in the car and they're driving home, that the parents have to undo everything that that crazy uncle did, and the parents have to say, no, you can't say those things, and no, you can't do those things because of the crazy uncle. <laughs> Well, there are Christians just like that, too, who have been Christians for a long period of time, but they're just like they were when they first became a Christian. And Paul says, don't be like that. No matter your age, live your life as spiritually mature to be a good example for everyone else in the church because then those people in this church are going to follow him in his leadership in that church. Seventh, seventh, a good pastor, he teaches the Bible. A good pastor teaches the Bible. Now, this is where that taking Bible study seriously slides back in. This is where it matters. He says here in verse 13, Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, the reason that Paul would focus so much on the public reading of Scripture, in, in, in the church in Ephesus under Timothy, he read way more Scripture than we do. And the reason is because they had very few biblical manuscripts. They didn't have a lot of writings from the apostles. And so the, the church congregation, they only got the Bible when they came to the church at Ephesus. And now today, we, the Bible is ubiquitous. It's the best-selling book in the entire world. You have Bibles in your home. You have Bible on your phone. You listen to the Bible in your car. Some people listen to the Bible when they're working out. And so we have the Bible. But notice what he says. Read the, read the Bible. And then he uses these two words, exhort and teach. You know what teach means. Teach just means tell them what it means. And, and exhort means then encourage them to go do it. Go do that. Encourage them to, to live that, be that kind of person. And so you can kind of start to put all these things together. A pastor is one who, who loves to meditate on God's word and studies it and, and prepares something so that then his people, when, when they come to church, he reads the Bible and he teaches them what it means. And then he says, go do that. Do that thing. That's an important thing to go do. That's the kind of life that you should be living. A good pastor teaches the Bible. Eighth. Eight, the good pastor has his calling noticed by other people. His calling is noticed by other people. Notice what it says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterances with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And that presbytery is the elders. The elder board would symbolically lay their hands on the pastor of the church and symbolically empowering that man to be the, the, the overseer of that church. And the elders would do that in a church. 
And, and so no person should be a pastor just because they got a degree in, in biblical studies. They, they have to be noticed by other people. They, their calling has to be seen by other people too. And for, for me, this happened almost the opposite of the way that you would imagine it happening. What you would probably imagine is, is you know, I was, I was waiting around for somebody to notice that, that, that I wanted to be the pastor. But that's not the way it happened for me at all. That's the way it happens for a lot of people, though. For a lot of people, they take small jobs in a church, and then they take a, a job as a student ministries pastor because they see it as a stepping stone to get to the pastor. They really want to do that, but they're just kind of waiting around for people to notice. That's not what happened to me at all. <laughs> Other people saw it in me before I even saw it in me. When our elder board came and discussed, uh, discussed with me about uh, pastoring Grace Community Church, my question of them was, are you sure? <laughs> The calling needs to be noticed by, by other people, and it certainly was by Timothy that Paul noticed it in, in Timothy. And number nine, number nine, uh, a good pastor, he matures spiritually. He spiritually matures. In verse 15 it says, so that your progress will be evident to all progress. That's the word of an advancing army or, or the word of pioneers that are blazing trails to, to new places. P progression, not perfection. That's the point. That, that it, the pastor is spiritually progressing in his, in his life. He's not perfect. No pastor is yet perfect, not one of them. Every pastor in the world have their, have their inconsistencies. Every pastor has their failures. Every pastor is not perfect. Every pastor has flaws. And I know in our culture, it's almost, it's almost cultural to, to try to hide those flaws, to almost pretend like, like you're, you're perfect. But that's not healthy. And sometimes Christians have a hard time differentiating the differences between respecting the, the, the role of the elder pastor in the church and putting that pastor on a pedestal and worshiping the pastor instead of worshiping Jesus. And, and those people who begin to worship their pastor, they, they feel really disenfranchised when that pastor fails. But every pastor has failures. Every pastor has, has flaws. It, it, it's... It's impossible to expect the pastor to be perfect. That's not, a, that's not a healthy church that assumes those things about their pastor. The pastor is progressing spiritually, just like you are, hopefully. Now, you, you may be here, and the pastor may be here as you're progressing, or you may be here, and the pastor's here, and you're progressing spiritually. But either way, you and the pastor should be progressing, maturing spiritually along the way. And number 10, number 10, the pastor perseveres. He, he perseveres. Notice what it says there. It says he perseveres in all things. A good pastor is going to endure the rigors of his calling. He's, he's going to stick with it. There are some pastors that they become pastors and they are not pastors forever. 
And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, One reason for it is they just don't belong being pastors, and God weeds them out. In college, I I roomed next to uh, the guy in the next room. He was a biblical studies major. And we graduated in the same year. And once he graduated, he got a great job pastoring a church, got married to the woman that he was dating in college. And he eventually left his ministry, and he was eventually divorced from his wife. And it was because he neglected to tell his congregation, and he neglected to tell his wife that he was addicted to pornography, and he was so sure that a pastor couldn't have any flaws that he hid it from everybody, and God weeded him out. He was not the right person to be a pastor. He wasn't the right one. And so some people aren't pastors because God weeds them out. They're not a right fit. But, but other men aren't pastors anymore because they just got worn out. It just got hard. It, it was just so difficult. And you can imagine that's what's going on in Timothy's life. Timothy's banging his head on all the difficulties every single day of these false teachers, and everybody in the church likes these false teachers. As a matter of fact, Timothy's the new guy, and all these false teachers are what have been leading this church for a while while Paul's been gone, and, and so now you have all this, this spiritual air, but the people kind of like the spiritual air and wants Timothy to teach. He's just banging his head against us all day, and you can just imagine, just imagine in your mind Timothy sitting back one late night working behind his desk and, and just thinking, you know, it, it would be it would be nice just to drive for Uber. <laughs> I, I could just get in my car and listen to music and just drive around all day. It would be nice just to, just to have three bosses that tell me how to turn the screw that day, and I'd be happy. that would be easier than all of the difficulties that I'm going through now. And Paul says, no, you persevere. You stick through the rigors because you have this calling and you need to do this for a particular reason. Notice the end of that verse, of verse 16. It says, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The catalyst that may produce salvation in somebody else is by noticing your perseverance and the messages that come from your perseverance, the mature messages that come from your perseverance could lead to other people's salvation. So stick with it and don't quit. And so here they are. This is the job description of a pastor. If you're interviewing for a good pastor, hopefully these things are on your resume. This is what they are. They warn a false teaching. They serve Jesus. They're serious about their Bible study. They're disciplined. They work hard. They're good examples to their church. They teach the Bible. Their calling is noticed by other people. They spiritually mature, and they persevere in all of the difficulties. This is the job description of a good pastor. Now, I mentioned to you at the beginning of this series that this book is about building the church, but it's not about the church building. It's more about building it the right way. And I told you that the the, the important aspect of building the church are the people who serve in these leadership, servant leadership capacities. And I'd mentioned to you that if you're still looking for a church, if you're trying to find the right church that's for you, I, I ask that you would stick around long enough to, to know what to look for as you're looking for, 
for for Mature. And we only have three more weeks of this. And a couple of topics that are coming up are, am I in a spiritually mature church? And what, what is the social structure supposed to be in a church? And so I hope you stick around for those. But even in just the last three weeks where we have learned the, the job description of an elder, the qualifications for an elder in a church, the qualifications for a deacon and deaconess in a church, and today we've learned the, the job description for a pastor in a church. I hope you are, are you already noticing something? I hope you are. That when you're picking a church, it, it, it is more important to notice the quality of the people who are holding the positions of the, the servant leadership roles in the church. Those are more important than anything else as you're looking for a church. The, the people who, who hold the servant leadership positions in the church, are, it's more important than the location of the church. I know that the church that you're thinking about is right around the corner, but they could be worshiping Satan for all you know. The proximity isn't the thing that, that helps you know if it's a good church or not. But the men and women who hold the servant leadership positions, yeah, that would tell you if it's a good church or not. More important even than the facility. The church might have a water slide into the baptismal, and it's super cool, and we got to go to that church. But what about the people who are leading that church? Are they the right ones? They're like they have to be the right ones. They put a they put a water slide into the baptismal. Who could go wrong with leadership like that? Well, you could go wrong. the The quality of the servant leadership in the church is more important than than the location more important than the facility, more important than the ministries in the church. Most people pick their church based on ministries that are available to them. And I get it. I understand. You know, that church, that church over there, they have that, that ministry for a Harley Davidson riding leather jacket wearing tattoo sporting dudes, and, and that church doesn't. Or that church has this kind of kids ministry, and, and that church has that kind of uh, student ministry for the teenagers, and, and these other ones have some different things, and so I'm looking for the right ministry. There's this large church in Southern California. They, uh, they're really known for uh, age and stage ministry, and they have on their campus, they have various venues for ages and stages. And by that, I mean you go into this building, and when you go into this building, it's catered to a particular age and stage. And so, for instance, all the worship music in this one is all hymns and traditional music. And, and then next door, you go to into another building, and next door they have uh, the worship music would be kind of contemporary, upbeat, kind of typical uh, modern worship music. And then, but you go into another building on campus, and that one has country music for their worship music. You know, banjos and guitars, and, and you know, you know, the, the blue bayou <laughs> in church. And, and then you go into the, this other building here, and this is like the hard rock, screamo, rah, kind of stuff. And so you get to pick what ministry is best for you. And that there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing unbiblical about that. There's nothing immoral about that. This is an area of Christian liberty where a church gets to decide. But do not pick your church based on the ministry. Don't pick your church based on the fact that there's some screamo facility that, that that's where you can listen to music there. All of them then have the pastor come up on the, on the screen. They get the same sermon everywhere, but it's just catered to an age and stage. Don't pick your church based on the ministry that's available because your kids are going to grow up. Don't pick it based on the teenage ministry because your kids are going to grow up and move out of the house. It's way better to pick your church based on the, 
the, the quality of the men and women who hold these leadership, servant leadership positions. Not on the quality of the worship music. I know worship music is a really important thing for Christians. We love our, we love our music, and that's good. I do too. But you'd be surprised at the number of churches who pay the worship team members who aren't even Christians, but they can just play a piano really well, or they can rock out on a guitar really well. And so they're non-Christians who are leading you in worship of Jesus, and you don't even know that that's happening. And so you can see why it is so important that it is not the music quality, that it's not the, the ministry availability, it's not the, the location, and it's not the facility, it is the quality of the people who hold these servant leadership positions. Now, I, none of this is, is meant to be a sales pitch for Grace Community Church. <laughs> I do know that our elders at Grace Community Church do fit the qualifications, and I know that our deacons and our deaconesses do fit the qualifications uh, here at Grace, and I guess you get to be the ones along with God that decide if I fit the qualification of a good pastor. My, my purpose today is not to sell you on Grace Community Church. My purpose is the same as Paul's. My purpose is that you would find a good church, one that you could submit to the elders in that church, one where you can spiritually grow. That is my goal. That's what Paul, Paul just wanted Timothy to fix a spiritual error and so that if, if Paul was going to have a family, he would take his family to the Ephesian church. And I want you to do the same thing. I want you to find a church that's right for you. If it's Grace Community Church, great. If it's not Grace Community Church, great. There are lots of other good churches in Riverside, but you need to pick one. And you need to find one, and you need to get integrated into that church and so that you can spiritually grow under great spiritual leadership in that church. Now, if you're kind of hearing me for the first time or, or you're not a believer, I want you to hear what a Bible-teaching church is going to tell you. A Bible teaching church is going to tell you that it's not, about it's not about looking like you're religious. It's not about doing good things. It's not about giving more money to the church. It isn't about wearing certain things. It isn't about stopping your cussing. It isn't about uh, wearing more modest clothing. It's not about any of those things. The way that you get to heaven is by changing your mind about who Jesus is. That's, that's all it is. You see, the Bible says that all of us are separated from God because of our sin. The word sin just means missing the mark. You know, you're, you're playing darts, and, and you don't get the, the bullseye. You just get one off of it. That's missing the mark. And we've all missed the mark at least once, haven't we? Just like playing darts, I'm, I'm sure you can get bullseye every single time, but maybe not just one. So the Bible says the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But nobody, nobody believes genuinely that God wants people to go to hell. And the reason that they don't believe it is because God says that he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He wants them to go to heaven. That's the message of, of John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. For God so loved the entire, he loved people who are sinners. He wants them to go to hell. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him, they would not perish, they would not go to hell, but they'd have eternity in heaven with Jesus. They'd have eternal life instead. And so that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned one time. And so when he goes to the cross, he is dying for my sin, and he dies for your sin. This is God dying for you. You, you can't make yourself good. And so Jesus steps in your place. 
and his perfect blood pours out, he pays the fine that you owe. Three days later, he rises from the grave, proving that he is God to you. And now, the way that you are brought from death into life is by changing your mind about who Jesus is. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And I want you to have eternal life. I don't want you to have eternal death. God doesn't want you to have eternal death. God wants you to have eternal life too. So I want you to change your mind about who Jesus is. Do you believe that Jesus was God that came to earth in the flesh? Do you really believe that? Do you really, really believe that he lived a perfect life so that when he was dying on the cross, he wasn't dying for the, the wrong that he did, he was dying for your wrong? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he was paying your fine, that he was paying for your sins on that cross? Do you believe that three days later, he rose from the grave? He, he, he literally came back alive again in a glorified eternal body that will no longer die. Do you believe that Jesus did that? Well, you talk to God about that. You tell him what you believe about him. The Bible says, if you believe in him so that you don't perish but have eternal life, then the rest of the story biblically is, is that when you die, your soul goes to heaven. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and will help you live a life honoring to Jesus Christ, including the things that we talked about today, like this continual maturing that happens. And so if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to find a church that is good for you too. Many of you are already Christians. And if you have not found a church, I want you to consider these things before Jesus. I want you to ask Jesus to help you find a church that you can spiritually grow in. Well, it's good to be in your home today. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for all that you have done for Grace Community Church. We thank you that you have provided for us with the deacons and the deaconesses and the elders. Thank you for your provision for the membership of our church. You've put all these things together for this time. You've put the, the people here so that their gifts and abilities could be used for, uh, for your glory. And God, as we look towards the next phases of our church where we can begin to see each other again, we pray that you would guide and lead and direct us in all of these areas and all of these things. We don't forget about the, the people who are sick. We pray for your compassion for them, your grace on their lives. We pray for the people who are working in the hospitals that you would protect their lives too. We thank you for their sacrifices. We pray for the scientists worldwide that are looking for permanent solutions to these things. We pray for our, our leaders in our city, our leaders in our state, our authorities in, in the federal government, that you would give them wisdom in how to address the coronavirus. And additionally, God, I pray for our country and its healing, that you would be the one that would be glorified in all that occurs. That in some way, the, the tragedies of these last few weeks, in some way, we know your word says that we'll work together for your glory, and we pray that that would be true. And We don't know how that would be, but I pray that Grace Community Church, the, the Christians of our church, would be bright lights in the places where they are. So God, we lift these things up to you. We thank you for the church that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.